0: Welcome to The Self Made Theory, the
1: podcast that's all about innovating, overcoming, and prospering. We interview founders, entrepreneurs, innovators, CEOs, and other exciting people about their amazing business journey. Over to your host, Ben Campbell, for this week's episode.
0: Welcome back to the podcast. Firstly, today, I just wanted to thank you, our listeners, for your support for the podcast. Whether you're in Australia, where the podcast is hosted, or listening to this from one of 60 other countries where people are subscribing, thank you. I trust you're enjoying it. If you have any suggestions for people you'd like us to interview, or ideas on what else you'd like to hear in the podcast, then drop us an email, podcast at theselfmadetheory.com. Into today's episode. We've heard a lot in Australia about how manufacturing is dead. Or is it? In this interview, I talk to the managing director of a company called Advanced Focus, Mark Fusco, who tells us that manufacturing isn't really dead, it's just changing, from competing on price to competing on value and design. And isn't this the way many industries are being challenged today? He talks about how that starting education early enough when new technologies come along is really critical, especially if you want first-mover advantage. He talks about how we should stop saying no to new ideas and instead start asking, well, why not? And he talks also about how that we should stop eliminating all risk, because if we don't, we are going to eliminate our future. My name is Ben Campbell, and this is The Self-Made Theory. Mark, welcome to the Self-Made Theory.
1: Thank you, Ben. Pleased to be here.
0: It's uh, good to have you on the show. And for those that don't know who Advanced Focus is, can we start with your elevator pitch? Sure.
1: Look, Advanced Focus uh, work with some leading companies uh, in a partnership way to essentially improve performance or grow and scale uh, the businesses. We're different to, I guess, a number of service organisations where... It's not just at a strategic level where we can help um, set a direction or a course for them, but we actually have the capacity and the capability to get our hands dirty uh, at the tactical level. And the way we do that is our team has all come from global industry. We've all held senior roles and done things before, so we can use that experience to both help guide but also build momentum in the change and transformation of our customers. We uh, traditionally have focused um, on the value creation sector, so advanced manufacturing is one of those areas, and um, we bring a lot of global expertise um, from that knowledge base. And I guess um, reflecting the diversity of our economy here, we've probably worked in probably 40 subsectors of, of those uh, uh, industries in Australia and, and some globally. And uh, it's that diversity, I think, that often helps us See adjacent innovation and opportunity from places that would be unexpected, but because we have that visibility, we can we can often bring that um, into a, into a new place and, and
0: and deliver some great value. So you might be working in one. Sort of sector, looking at advanced manufacturing, and then in a completely different sector, go. You know what? We learned something out of you know, sector B over here, mm-hmm. food and wine, or something. Mm-hmm. You know, and uh, maybe we can take that into, you know, into another area. Absolutely. Yeah. Okay.
1: Yeah. So, for example, um, we uh, we have played with technology out of mining, uh, underground, and and brought that into defence sector. We've um, we've we've taken um, uh, some. Oven technology out of the food sector and brought that into electronics. Um, we've um, we've taken some medical device applications and we and we brought that into um, food. So wow. there's there's um, yeah, I guess often we think of innovation being new creation, but often the answers exist somewhere, and sometimes how you apply that in new ways is the greatest
0: opportunity for quick return. Yeah, right. So let's address the elephant in the room most people would consider that manufacturing is dead in Australia and if you look back perhaps at the history in South Australia we've had a you know, particularly compared to GDP we've had a pretty strong performance you know in uh, you know 20 or so years ago but and comparatively with the rest of Australia we've sort of battered higher uh, than average in terms of uh, our manufacturing output but that's obviously changed a lot over the last 10 15 years Why is manufacturing? something that Australia should continue to do.
1: Look at the heart of
0: heart of it, what
1: we believe. Um, we think that in terms of economic value to any advanced economy, you need to make things. Yep. You need to create value. Manufacturing is such an important sector for that. Typically for every job in manufacturing, it generates something like four or five others in, a, in an economy like Australia. That's a big multiplier. You don't get that out of mining. You don't get that out of services. Often, you know, Um, we think that when all jobs are equal but they're not and so when we when we see uh, some jobs like cutting hair or doing nails if we're all doing that for each other and someone's a barista in the corner is the economy really going to grow whereas once we start to create highly valuable um, uh, solutions that can be made not only does it avoid us importing those things from a long way away but it also gives us the opportunity to export those and I think There's a reason why uh, countries around the world prize their manufacturing industries and really support them, and that's because they understand how valuable this is for uh, the total uh, performance of the economy.
0: So we first met, I think, at a presentation you did uh, down at Flinders University, actually, and I was super surprised at what was happening here in South Australia around advanced manufacturing. Is that a different beast compared to what we would call traditional manufacturing? Sort of large scale, non-customised, you know, products like cars and mm-hmm. you know, fridges and and other things.
1: Look, I think there is no question manufacturing is changing. I think sometimes we get caught up in the way that we measure things, yeah. um, and uh, and those. Measurements often need to change. So things like um, the way that we we measure our sectors, what what is what is manufacturing, what is service, and how they blur now, is actually you know one of the challenges for governments. They can't always see exactly what's happening. But I'd say that on the whole, we've seen some traditional large manufacturers. I call them large sheds. These are the these are the ones that hit the front page of the of the uh, the newspaper or the uh, the TV when they close and people walking out. That image burns deep in most people's minds, and for their parents, looking at those things, they're not going to tell their kids to go into that industry because they don't think there's a future. Those companies, on a whole, on the whole, were competing on price, and uh, Australia is now a high-cost economy. So one of the reasons that um, manufacturing is changing is the uh, the cost base of which you know we have a quality of life, where yep. we earn decent money. We don't want to change that situation, but we do need to change how we compete and the way that we produce things so that that is not an impediment. So uh, the examples that I shared last year, we've got fortunately you know, some fantastic businesses in Adelaide that are producing world-class products exporting to the world. Uh, companies like Redarc, companies like SMR, companies like um, Schneider that we used in, in uh, those examples. They are not competing just on price price is an element of value but they're competing in in a number of different ways where they're leveraging value creation and they're capturing that in clever solutions with their products and exporting them to the world.
0: Yeah right and so what changes in the industry that feeds into advanced manufacturing? So I'm thinking particularly around things like what roles do governments play and how do they Change to support the industry compared to perhaps you know what we saw maybe you know, here with Holden in South Australia where we, you know, the government pumps a bunch of cash in, and uh, you know, several years later they're, they're no longer here.
1: Yeah, look, it's tough. I feel for governments in that um, they're always facing very tough decisions in terms of um, do they do they help an industry that's in trouble. To allow it to have a soft landing or extend its life or do they let it die and it's tough because um, I think in today's uh, environment where we've got media live all the time very short cycles um, we don't always get out of the sound bites the real story and um, I know you know for, for people that are not intimate with um, some of these industries they hear you know this is a lot of money but in the context of the economy, in, in the context of the amount of value it brings, the economy. Governments do those calculations; they give the money for a good reason, but often that that isn't translated into the community and and, and the way that they perceive what's going on. Look, industries uh, live and die, and you can't you can't prop them uh, forever. But sometimes governments um, strategically have to take decisions to buy time, so that we don't have you know, significant um, shedding of skilled jobs where we get mass. Uh, migration uh, as a consequence or worse, you know, we lose those skills out of the economy because um, the automotive sector, as an example, was certainly a a fantastic uh, input into the business community on a whole and uh, it doesn't matter what industry we work in these days, we're always um, coming across uh, people with some aspect of auto
0: um, in their businesses that's contributing value to them. So if you're a holder of the government purse strings and handing out the cash... What would you do? What would you do differently today?
1: Yeah, that's a, a very hard question for for someone like me. I'm, I think um, I think education is a critical part of this. Yeah. Um, I think the um, and not so, just... so
0: education where re-education or edu- you know, new education or it, focus in particular areas.
1: It needs to be in multiple areas yeah. because um, there's a number of elements that need to be played with. Um, one is that. Um, As the economy changes it's extremely difficult to build large manufacturing company again just the the sheer difficulty in this environment to do that is going to make that a very unusual thing to happen so we've got existing manufacturers that are very good we should help make them great Um, we should help them uh, transition from being a size to a bigger size because they will pull others along with them and uh, uh, in terms of supply chain in terms of innovation and things like that i think um, When I look at the technologies that are coming, the technologies that are maturing, in many cases we're not yet teaching those things, certainly not at university level. So how we we tap that knowledge, how we accelerate the transfer of knowledge and the value of those skills into the economy is an important, I think, policy area for the future. These things are often sub-economic for universities when they uh, first look at them because um, industry don't know they need them. The university doesn't have demand, therefore it's not economic, whereas the reality is in three years' time, when, when that technology is mature, everyone will want it, but the first mover advantage for the economy is lost. So it's trying to sort of not pick winners, but certainly look at how we can get closer to that cycle, or how, how we can try and innovate things that don't take three years to develop a curriculum.
0: So there's a real timing piece here, isn't there? Because you've got, you know, the education piece in terms of growing the workforce that's capable and then you've got industry actually having the jobs and producing, which comes first? And, and how do you balance, you know, those two things together? And that's really a question for many companies but probably more so manufacturing, I assume, because of ramp-up times and up times, et cetera.
1: Skills take time to build. And, and often longer to build a return. When, when, we look at, uh, when we look at scaling companies, a couple of things we're really looking at. One is how we, how we systemise what we do, but actually in, a, in, in advance of that, if we think in terms of um, what is it that we're, that we're going to create, it's those products often and the way that they go to market. Um, that's where a lot of success is happening uh, today and we've seen some amazing companies come from nowhere so i know there's definitely been a a strong focus on startups within the uh, the ecosystem here yeah Startups are a very important part of the the fabric of change, right? Because they bring exciting new ideas, but they're also uh, tough to get on the ground. You know, they they, they often uh, don't succeed for lots of different reasons when you start new businesses. But how do we inject some of that startup mentality, and how do we how do we help those companies that say? Um, are on a trajectory that they've uh, chosen for themselves, where they are doing great things. And I guess, you know, one of the things that we've chosen to do is um, uh, uh, recognise those companies through a program called the Impact Awards, where we uh, we uh, we can help identify those businesses and help give them, I guess, some profile, some recognition, some appreciation for what they're doing. But also within the business community here, try and build. A, build a uh, let's say an alumni a, a network of industry leaders that recognize that these companies are an important part of the future of this economy and how can we in, you know perhaps share a little bit of our expertise to support them and so we have industry ambassadors doing that and I think for me I'm extremely encouraged by you know the business seeing the value in doing that and some of these companies have gone on to amazing things uh, from being recognized and uh, we certainly want to Try and shift the, the balance, I guess, uh, in terms of perception in the economy that whether we can or we can't is that it's it's actually in our heads that determines that. Too often, I think we um, we get caught up in oh that's a new technology we wouldn't do that here or you can't do that in Australia because of certain uh, reasons or beliefs. Part of part of what I, I genuinely believe we have to to think through is and ask perhaps more often is why not, right? because um, we live in one of the best places of the world um, in terms of an uh, environment to live and bring up kids and, you know, the, the quality of life. What we don't always have are those world-leading companies being generated, and, um, but what do companies need? They need the best people. What do the best people need? Beyond money, they need a great place to live. So we have those, and I think um, sometimes we just take for granted those things. Um, We think we have to go elsewhere for those things and or buy those things elsewhere and not give it a chance. So I guess that's an area where both industry um, and government policy can, uh, I guess, help cultivate an environment where if we're going to take a risk with something new, why why wouldn't we try and do that here if we're first? Because if we could, then maybe that, that, that solution could be exported to other places around the world. And I think sometimes we, um, we're the last to pick those things up, and we see that often with um, you know, large investments where there's a lot of learning going on, but it's not in this country.
0: Mm. Yeah, it's a, it's a bit of a, an interesting dilemma for, uh, for our thinking, isn't it? Uh, because it's not just about saying why not, but it's also then pushing around the, well, there might be some generous, genuine reasons why not. Mm. And some of that might be down to you know, our uh, desire for particular lifestyles, etc. But you sometimes need to push beyond that and think, well, if we can't do it because of that reason, is there another way to achieve it? Mm. Or is there some other way we can come up with some other innovation that makes it able to be done here?
1: Mm-hmm. Look, I think, um, very good question. Look, there's always going to be in every economy, by the way, the, you know, the, the belief that I, I, don't, I actually don't want to grow. That I'm actually comfortable where I am. I'm not talking about those sort of companies and or lifestyle businesses.
0: That's not that's not you or me, no. and that's not our listeners. No,
1: no. What we're talking about is uh, the companies that actually really want to do this. And how do we make it easy? How do we make it Teflon for them to be successful? You know, how do we how do we identify and role models to inspire people to believe it can be done here? And look, I, I've got a lot of time for people like Youran Um and uh, Jana Matthews. Both of those are international leaders in innovation. They've they've, they've spent a lot of time in places like Silicon Valley, Stockholm, with some incredible um, businesses. And, you know, when I've asked them the question, you know, what's holding us back? You know, what is it that we don't see here that we see in these other places? And it's visible role models. Yeah. Um, We actually don't have uh, a lot of those. um, I think culturally in Australia we like to... Um, if we're doing well, just keep the head down and mm. don't toot the horn,
0: and you know, um, someone might work out what I'm doing and do it better. I interviewed uh, Jana a few episodes ago, okay, and she right. talked exactly to that yeah, that brilliant. point. Yeah, yeah. Now,
1: so uh, on that basis, you know, part of this is to try and you know help some of these companies be seen. Um, it always amazes me when when a, a company uh, gets exposed to uh, uh, business leaders that. Is unknown, often the words are, I had no idea yeah. that could be done here, I, yep. d- I didn't think that was possible. These are the sort of things that actually challenge our mindset to do something different. So,
0: have you got some examples of that and, and maybe you know, some of the winners of your impact awards?
1: Yeah, yeah, look, I think as, as an example, um, yeah, there was a, a company that developed a, a medical uh, uh, management system similar to what we've rolled out into our hospital here, but not theirs, uh, that manages, you know, all these patient records and controls and so forth. They they have now uh, listed on the stock exchange and they're winning business internationally with their software. We're not using it in Adelaide, but we are using it in other places. And, uh, you know, the, the belief, you know, why would we choose this system over an American or a European system? It's, it's often belief. Defence the same. You know, we've been working with some drone companies where um, the Americans or the English will buy our drones but not the Australian uh, Defence Force because it's not that the product isn't good enough, it's just perhaps an unconscious bias that
0: sometimes we, we think if it's here, maybe it's not good enough. So, I mean, there are people that will have dealt with government tenders and other things over the years. I know I've certainly dealt with my fair share of them. That have a often the tendering process has an element of you know is it sourced locally, is it sourced, uh, is it manufactured locally, and you get some points for that Mm. um, in the system. But is that just is that just a a bit of a furphy? Um, Look,
1: for me, I'm very sensitive towards, um, let's call it local business tax, where oh, we have to do this almost like to tick a box yep. or something like that. I don't like that, It doesn't encourage. it's like a form of protectionism. Yep. And uh, I think you know, the world's much more open place and we need to be competitive. I think we're, what we need, do need to think about is um, where are the areas where we want to create competitiveness? Where are the areas where we actually need to create new solutions for problems that haven't been solved? And, and if those things are hard to do, right, and they're risky, we um, these are the areas that potentially have got the the, uh, the opportunity to create IP and that IP could be valuable on a global base for if, it, if the problem's solved. So almost become the lead customer. The challenge, I think, is culturally we don't generally forgive anybody who who takes a chance and it doesn't work i mean i don't think there's too many ministers <laughs> or prime ministers that go hey we we, we we put a bet on this because if we cracked the nut and we got it right this would be a really great outcome for mm-hmm. the country when when politicians are forced to basically eliminate all risk out of a decision they ultimately eliminate most of that opportunity that goes with it
0: that's a good point isn't it yeah.
1: So we've got to be comfortable to take risks, mm. I think, as a, as a culture. And, and we've got to... Um, I think as media's got a role to play in, in allowing that piece of education to play out and, and create a safe place to try some things because often when we try things, that's when we learn. And
0: uh, too well, often. And that's... You know, and often you've often heard the statement, let's not use the word fail, let's <laughs> le- use the word learn. <laughs> uh, and, and, look, I think it's a great it's a great one. And, you know, if we think about... You know, investment that venture capital firms mm. make, etc. They don't get it right every single time, no. um, but they know um, they're gone. But that's that's the game, and they know that you know maybe three out of five, mm. maybe four out of five, maybe two and a half out of five, whatever whatever the number comes up at. But they know that uh, that's the way to really see greatness come out of companies and ideas.
1: Well, look, it's, it's, if there's no risk, there's there's really a reward, and I guess um, you know we we have. Um, such an opportunity i think to generate intergenerational reward you know reward that goes beyond uh, our lifestyle the legacy that we lead you know for our children our children's children and uh, i think sometimes uh, good can be the enemy of great mm. i think you know we have a you know we we think things are good but it's good because others before has actually taken those decisions yeah. um, and help create the environment we have i think sometimes we don't Always get that context. We don't always connect what we've got to those uh, risks that were taken, and uh, but also, you know, the, it, it's our responsibility, I believe, um, and that's not just the politicians. I think it's the community, it's the business community, to um, to ask this question, and that is, what are we leaving for the next generation? You know, are we going to leave in a better place? Have we got jobs? Have we got um, economies? Have we got an environment that's in a better state because of the the, the things that we've done during our time, mm. and uh, I think sometimes we think certainly politically very short term because of the cycles. But but equally, um, we don't allow and don't reward people to think long. And when they do, uh, they're criticised for saying, oh, that's three elections away, you know, that's just a smokescreen. Whereas the reality is we need to think that far ahead. Other countries are thinking that far ahead and they're gaining huge benefits from being able to plan things over a longer period.
0: I mean the political cycle is a problem in many countries in the world but they don't have the same unbelief and lack of, what's the right word, lack of desire for greatness uh, that perhaps we do. You talked a little bit about the next generation. Mm-hmm. So for parents listening to this whose you know, children are choosing their, you know, their subjects, their university courses, etc., or have just done that for this year, where would you recommend that they focus
1: again very uh challenging question (laughs) um look with the work that we're doing playing with you know some amazing technologies you know artificial intelligence internet of things um 3d printing you know very transformational in the way that they are going to affect the jobs of the future two things that i would say are important and unfortunately not always easy for parents to work out I think sometimes we have a natural bias to to look at what we what we what we would have aspired for ourselves or our parents' influence on us over our our time, and we you know we look to to say a lawyer or a doctor and go, oh look, they are great um, uh, roles, um, you have a great life, um, those types of things. But some of those areas are genuinely changing in, in a dramatic way.
0: I mean, I was only talking to someone today about the legal field, and with the rise of artificial intelligence. Is that the end of the paralegal? Is the role of the lawyer going to change so dramatically that we're going to need a lot less of them because all of the casework, all the research, all the other stuff's going to be done by artificial intelligence?
1: Look, when I try and explain it, I I, I look at it in two ways. Look, I'm a a STEM advocate. I believe in uh, the technical skills. And there's no question that we need people who can make the machines, Okay, So we need really smart, proper you know, clever research scientists, engineers to do that and to execute on that really well. But
0: you that's only going to be a small portion of people, isn't it?
1: It's a portion. Yeah. Right? Most people work inside machines, okay? And those machines today are the jobs that we have. could be how we use a computer, for example. We don't need to have STEM to work out how to use it, but then what we do with that computer is really important. Yeah. So computers are really good at some things, Right? And uh, in, in the case of artificial intelligence in particular, if we look at the, the tasks, that are, I always break it down into three things. In the physical world, we say if it's dull, it's dirty, or it's dangerous, it's going to be up for grabs for automation. Okay, If, if it's dirty, dirty, no one wants to do it. If it's dangerous, society's not going to let anyone do it. And if it's dull, a computer can probably do it better because it's a mundane task. We've got to think about that also for office jobs and it's probably there that's probably the first time we're going to see uh, a shift in jobs where these technologies can definitely take away the dull. So if we think about jobs where the bulk of the work is very, uh, say, repetitive and you know, calculation or algorithm based, those, those types of jobs, you know, for example, searching for information, grouping information, uh, adding up things, all of those sort of tasks can definitely be augmented by automation. That doesn't take away the human factor, but the face-to-face time, the influence that's needed for, for the top ends of those fields. And lawyers probably in the future, certainly the top end, will be, become more valuable because they can leverage that information more quickly, uh, more cheaply than ever yep. and become more valuable. Yep. And, and that will apply to many professional services fields. So I'd encourage that we think also about the creative side, um, that we, we think about what are, the, what are the environments that we create Uh, That allow people to uh, think outside the square um, to play to our strengths as humans because those things are much harder for machines to do.
0: Hmm. And uh, I was listening to a podcast this morning actually on artificial intelligence and they talked about the other roles that have compassion at their core and Mm -hmm. those things which Mm -hmm. You, know, you hope never get re- replaced by machines, but but clearly those are, those are going to be uh, roles that are going to continue to be important into the future as well. Uh,
1: there's no question. Mm. H- humans um, have some amazing capacities at the moment that just are unlikely to be replaced by um, automation. And part of, part of that is also what we believe, right? And we accept yeah, as society, we have a choice, right? If if we don't want the chat bot, if we don't like, if we prefer the personal thing and we're prepared to pay for it, then we'll, society will choose. Um, and I think sometimes when we're trying to predict the future, we um, we look at things like this and go, oh, you know, the fear sets ho- sets hold. I'm, I look at it much more uh, the other way. I, I just I see opportunity everywhere in terms of. Uh, what an exciting place for the future where things will change. We need to teach people, uh, of course, how to adapt to that change. We need to create environments where we continue to learn and teach people to learn. Um, and I know we's, we're certainly doing that in a number of good universities and schools, but um, we have to accept that um, that, it, that is um, the way. But not to be afraid of those things but and try and hang on to the past so much because. I look at things like I think in ten years um, we went from uh, riding horses to driving cars, and you know for the for the people that were building cars, it was really good, right? And the people driving the cars even better. The, dudes, the, the dude, the dude making buggy whips. Buggy whips. Uh, well, <laughs> it's funny. There's still a buggy buggy whip maker today, it, make it and he makes a good margin, right? But the reality is, the vast majority had, many to, of them. had mm. to transition, mm. and so there's always winners and losers, and I think when we think about you know the shift in the economy it will be significant and profound but with every significant and profound shift great productivity comes from this technology and great wealth with it and i think we've got to we've got to you know accept that there's a shift we can see it and we don't want to be you know um at the wrong end of that shift and that's Mm. probably the most important thing have the eyes open for that
0: Mm. I do like the notion that we are actually more in control than we think we are, and a lot of that comes down to how we use our wallet and the way in which, you know, what what we're happy to accept and pay for mm-hmm. and what we're not happy to accept and pay for mm. because we can't have cheap and commoditised and low service. No, we have a choice. No, we have a choice. Mm.
1: So um, it, it seems funny, like, I mean, technically... There'll be aspects of the economy, whatever it is, that will have those extreme views, right? They will exist in the in the future economy. It'll be a segment. Mm. It may not be everything because we choose what that will ultimately mm. be. I mean, I, I look at, you know, when I was growing up uh, as a kid trying to work out, you know, what my career was going to be, you know, robots were coming and uh, computers were coming and uh, they were going to take all their jobs, right? So I started learning computers and, you know, playing with this stuff on the side and, and uh, at the time thinking, you know, you know, there was genuine fear of, about the future and what opportunities would really be there. But the reality has turned out very different. Of course
0: it is. I mean, unemployment's probably, mm. you know, as good as it's ever been. It's probably better than it was back then.
1: So, yeah, I think from that side, I think we... Um, there's there's probably more... It's more being aware rather than fearful. Mm. And I think more open to change. Because I think the thing that gives me encouragement, great encouragement for the future is the, the kids of today, as they're learning these new things... They adapt and adopt so quickly because they primarily because they don't have to unlearn. Mm. I think the hard ones that suffer often are us with the grey hairs, right? <laughs> we, we, we haven't we, got
0: that many grey hairs. No, there's a couple, there.
1: <laughs> and uh, for every one of them, you, it, these are these are lessons in life you've learned that sometimes you know you have to unlearn to to seize the opportunity. And I think you know for us older. Uh, older people in the economy now it's 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 recognizing that you know is this really a problem or is it just a problem for us and is it our is it our our um, belief system that's actually limiting our ability to see those opportunities
0: well, plus our experience mm-hmm. and plus you know what we've seen before you know those are all factors that build influence that, our decision making they don't, and I, look yeah the perfect scenario is not you know Old or young, the perfect scenario is both because when you have young people working with those more experienced, you get the balance of ideas, risk, ideas, things that have come before, new ways of thinking, challenges, Mm. and you build those two things together Mm. and you'll ultimately get a better outcome.
1: Without a doubt. When we're, when we're making radical changes with the use of technology or change in, a, in an environment, we often try and build teams where we have that mix of experience and youth. The youth because they can you know, they're hungry, they're not inhibited or threatened by the change. If it's an easier way, we're up for it. And for the old, older, more experienced in the team, to use that wisdom to to uh, guide the the enthusiasm of youth Mm. and I think in 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 our business uh, uh, environment where change is prevalent mixing that diversity of views becomes really important if we're all one or the other it it can be a problem
0: Mm. so what technology excites you the most if you you can't pick one give me a couple okay (laughs) okay it's
1: hard as a tool maker I would say look I the, the 3D printing for me has been um, absolutely incredible, yeah. um, the stuff that can be made. In particular, I love, I love making things out of metal and having, I guess, that ingrained in the DNA, all of the old ways of doing things, to see how it can be done now and how amazing the products are and the, and the value and solutions they create. It is absolutely transformational.
0: So so what excites you about that? Is it the, the speed at which things can be built? Is it the flexibility or the diversity? What What is it particularly about 3D printing?
1: It, it compresses value chain. So it, it definitely, a speed is an aspect where you're shifting value and you're shifting where that gets created. And for me, that's exciting in terms of how it will change what we do. So instead of for example, making a pattern, doing a casting, machining the casting, uh, which could take months. You know, you can do this, you know, technically overnight for some things.
0: So, so it's the change from, you know traditional, where one company designed it, somebody tooled it, somebody built it, etc., mm. being sort of compressed into the one, effectively the one, the one organisation or the one process.
1: In some cases, that can definitely uh, occur, and I, I think. For that reason, it, it changes speed. So, for example, working with the Navy last week in, in Sydney, they, they've just rolled out 3D printers on their new uh, destroyers. And and so, for them, it's about, well, what tools do we need? Do we bring one of everything? We don't know. But now we can print on demand. It could be a spare part that gets us keeps us going until shore, or it might be a, a tool or, or something, a fixture or something that, that we, we couldn't envisage we need. And so you know to me that 's that 's cool it 's very cool right <laughs> and, and and you think about the the courage it takes for for senior people in navy to sort of sign those things off and say, "Hey, look, yeah, the benefits yeah. are worth the 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 risks of doing this that 's what i 'm talking about mm. that's you know changes value The other is around i think for me being a knowledge business uh, the use of ai i think um Uh, an internet of things in terms of connectivity. Those, uh, we've got sensors, you know, uh, dropping in price at an exponential rate. We've got connectivity, you know, everywhere. The cost of storage is almost uh, uh, zero. Uh, Processing power is uh, improving at twice the speed every two years. So we've got all of this convergence going on where um, information uh, will be everywhere and it goes beyond our ability to crunch it in an Excel spreadsheet. So developing, I guess, intelligence algorithms that can help us harness that information um, to understand things that we could never understand before I think is going to be one of the most tremendous transformations in in the way that we do things. And we've only just scratched the surface of that.
0: Mm. Many people are scared about AI Mm -hmm. and about unleashing the... uh, decision-making uh, for important things on, on, uh, on computers mm. and taking the, you know, the safety valve out uh, for, uh, for, for important things. Are you in that camp? Do you, do you see you know, risks and concerns and fears around AI? Or do you think we're a long, long way from that?
1: Yes and no. What I see is, if you look at the dashboard of your car, today it tells you the speed fuel light comes on it tells you you're going to need fuel soon right that's information how we choose to act on that information where humans are in control what I'm talking about is having dashboards for for things that matter to us in terms of automating those decisions there's lots of mundane decisions that if we set the rules as in humans set the rules that we want for us then um, again I'm, I'm not so concerned about those things where there is genuine i guess risk and um importance to uh, to your question is in the defense area i think um there's no question it's a new weapon mm. um it's no question that if uh people want to build war machines with this technology um we don't know the outcomes and i, I guess it's a bit like um uh, viruses and things like that that people create um as uh, uh weapons we never want to unleash them on society mm. and i i have no doubt that people are working on those i Genuinely hope that um, um, you know we don't we don't suffer the same things that we have with you know chemical weapons and, and nuclear weapons.
0: Yeah, that's um, that's certainly a, certainly a risk. Hopefully, there's still a big red button somewhere that somebody has to push with some you know multiple keys that have to be turned you know with different people etc. before <laughs> before big, before they can launch a, a, a big a or,
1: big emergency stop or something. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I yeah. oh, look. Oh, I, I think the upside for society is far greater mm. um you know, uh assuming that you know we can live harmoniously and look I, I think none of us can predict the future but i i do hope that you know in terms of um you know the ethics that we apply to these things that you know we um you know we uh, as a society choose to uh, uh i guess enforce and uh, reinforce mm. the, the importance of those things mm. and I think, you know, on the whole we are doing that despite the, the weapons of mass destruction we have but uh, I find sometimes it can really polarise people's thinking because we think it's it could be used for evil therefore we don't want to apply it for good yeah. and there's so much good that, you know, can be applied. Oh, yeah. It will save lives, it will improve quality of life, it will improve our health, uh, it will reduce the costs of uh, uh, living, it will uh, make us happier. There's so many things for good it can do and I think, you know, sometimes we let... Yeah, know, that negative um, piece sort of just cloud our ability to even consider it.
0: Mm. It's, not a, it's not a yes or no. It's not no. yes, we're doing it or no, we're not doing it. Mm. It's a how do we accentuate the positives and bring those to life quickly while minimising the potential risks that sit around it. Mm. Mm.
1: And and some of those things may help us become uh, better humans mm. because if we, if we have greater transparency um, in what we do and trust in the information that we now have... Um, then yeah, you know, maybe we can be better mm. as a society. I mean, that's a that's probably
0: a whole other topic to talk about.
1: <laughs> yes, it is, and I don't mean in 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 the, in the way that uh, some countries are thinking about
0: it. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, well, mate, thank you very much for spending some time with us and talking about what I think is pretty exciting. I mean, when I heard your presentation, I was like, wow, I didn't realise all of that was happening just here in South Australia, let alone the work that you're doing around the country in advanced manufacturing. It's pretty exciting. And, uh, and I think it gives us sort of, you know, a lot of uh, hope and uh, in the future for uh, the things that we make here in this country. Excellent. Thank you, Ben. Thanks, mate. Well that certainly throws a different light on the opportunities for cities like Adelaide where traditionally we've had a strong big end of town manufacturing industry. I'll be watching this sector pretty closely over the coming months. There's lots of exciting things happening. If you're interested just Google Brabham BT62 supercar which is being built right here. If you want to find out more about this episode or would like to know how to connect with Mark and Advance Focus, then head over to our website www.theselfmadetheory.com. Some of you may know that this podcast is a labour of love. We fund all the production costs ourselves and it was never intended to be a money-making venture. I'm just passionate about helping entrepreneurs and businesses, well that's what I do in my paid day job in my business advisory practice, and the podcast is one way for you to hear real stories about what it's like to build and grow a business. All we ask from you is that if you're enjoying the podcast, then please give us a rating or a comment in your favourite podcast app. It would mean a lot. Until next time, keep innovating, overcoming and prospering.